KMCHD3 Detroit, KMPS HD3 Seattle, WBMX HD3 Boston, and on AOL Radio and Yahoo Launchcast. Psychic Radio is now CBS Radio's The Sky. Back to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Call now 248 545 Soul. New SkyRadio.com. What is point zero? Can global energy shifts affect us socially and personally? Can celestial bodies really have actual influence on human affairs through known scientific processes? Hey there, and welcome to the 490th edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. I'm Ben, and those curious questions came from my co-host and partner in the paranormal, my dad. So this evening we bring you a guest you've met before, but with a different twist. Uh, We seldom have novelists on the show unless they're experts in the field uh, they write about, and this one is. So we welcome your calls if you so desire. The number is 248-545-7685. William Gladstone is a Harvard-trained cultural anthropologist, Yale too, I understand, and also a best-selling novelist, film producer, and literary agent. He's best known for his international bestseller, The Twelve, and his latest, The Power of Twelve, being released this month. Bill has done extensive field work in South America, Europe, and Asia in, 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 in his pursuit to learn... Uh, what I guess the what above the twenty and the what and why and how of the 2012 prophecies and what they might really have meant. His websites include www.12thebook that's twelve the n- number twelve the book dot com and www.williamgladstone.org. So William Gladstone, welcome back to Behind the Paranormal. It's a pleasure to be on your show today. It's a beautiful day here in California. Well, it's rainy and cold here in New England, so, so it's can, terrible <laughs> here. <laughs> you can, you can enjoy well, you're on the, the the wrong side of the of the vibrational divide. Uh, yeah, <laughs> get into that, won't we? Indeed, we shall. Uh, people are always trying to get us to move to California. Well, anywho, on to our uh, show here. So, Bill, before we do anything else, uh, you and many others uh, predicted that 2012 would bring about major changes. Uh, were you wrong? Are major changes in the world occurring, and we just haven't noticed them yet? Well, it depends who you are. A lot of us are noticing major changes. There's definitely been major changes. Um, the way I like to describe it, though, is if you think of a 26,000-year cycle, which is what the Mayans were saying, a 26,000-year cycle was coming to an end, the last 10 seconds of a regular day, unless you're staring at the sun, are not that much different from the first 10 seconds after the sun has set. So we've actually been experiencing a lot of rapid change in the last several years, and this change is continuing. We have definitely changed the way that we're looking at our world. The Internet is now connecting everyone. We're definitely aware of everything that's happening all over the globe in a way that was completely impossible even 40, 50 years ago. So that you have some small changes like that, and they're not so small. And then there are also subtle changes energetic changes, if you will, which, yes, the majority of people are not aware of these changes because you're not at that level of awareness. But certain people um, are aware, and these changes are going to continue to accelerate. Right. So why why were people, even those who have no knowledge of indigenous cultures, so taken with 12-21-2012 and the predictions surrounding it? Well, part of it is the fascination that people have with the end of the world. Um, whether you're Bill Gates or, you know, serving in the 7-Eleven, you're all the same if the world's going to end because of some uh, apocalyptic event. So I think there's a certain fascination that, in a strange, morbid way, makes people feel good if they think the world's going to end through some 
you know, apocalyptic event. In, in addition, you've had cultures predicting the end of cycles from the beginning of time. And there's been confusion between the end of a cycle and the end of the physical earth, the end of an era, if you will. And we have had the end of many cycles throughout the last several thousand years, but of course we've not had the end of the physical earth. And we're not likely to have the end of the physical earth for you know, probably 100 million or more years. Our sun will eventually burn out, and this planet will eventually not be you know, the home for any life. But we're talking you know, hundreds of millions or billions of years into the future. The smaller doomsday scenarios that people like to talk about really have to do with the end of human life as we know it, which is frankly possible, but has not been predicted by the Mayans, certainly, and had nothing to do with the Mayan calendar. Right, 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 right. So uh, as you know, by the uh, late 1970s, my dad uh, had come to the conclusion that uh, the multiversal interpretation of quantum physics explains most or all the uh, what we call the paranormal. Uh, so tell us about how multiversal ideas have influenced your conclusions. They've, they've influenced me greatly. In fact, The Power of Twelve, my newest novel that just was published last Tuesday, talks directly about multi-universes and the reality that there probably is a zero point that contains all the information in all of the universes and that somehow we're able to access that information. And it plays a major theme in my novel, The Power of Twelve, which includes descriptions of planet Naranjada, the Council of Twelve, and many other ideas that relate to people who believe these are not just fantasies, but real organizations and real extraterrestrial intelligence, which is in communication with planet Earth. I'm not saying that it's actual. For me, as a novelist, I'm saying, what if? I've never had any evidence or direct encounters of my own with the Council of Twelve, but I have talked with people who believe that the Council of Twelve is a real council, and that was one of the reasons in my fiction, and I made up my own Council of Twelve, the power of Twelve is the Council of Twelve and does relate to the ability to communicate from other intelligence with planet Earth. I also talk about the Illuminati, and I talk about some of the historical people that have actually played a significant role in getting our planet to where it is right now, including George W. Bush. And, you know, I'll, I'll leave it to the readers to decide if these are good people or bad people, but they're certainly controversial. We had three uh, Enos in the uh, <clears throat> Skull and Bone Society <laughs> over the years. <clears throat> Excuse me. Well, I, I don't know, Bill, about a lot of this stuff, but <clears throat> I would say that... Um, one of the most disconcerting things about some of the interpretations of quantum mechanics and the MWI, the multiple worlds interpretation of it, is that all things are possible somewhere or some when, so to speak. In other words, if you can imagine a council of 12, then you would not have been able to do so were it not existent in some part of the multiverse somewhere in some alternate world where all possibilities supposedly exist in real concrete form, you know, whatever that may mean. Well, of so. course, if you're correct, then we can imagine all evil organizations as well, and there's unlimited possibility for evil as well as for good. Well, that's true. <clears throat> Not to get Manichaean on everybody, but I can see the <laughs> point there. Uh, the, the thing is that uh, you know, you've got alternate worlds where 
you've got supposedly there are a lot of things that don't exist in our sphere of consciousness, which I suppose one could mm -hmm. call this this world, and in alternate worlds that that might be more or less unconnected to us. Although, what meaning does that have in the multiverse, where it's an open system? Seems to me. Um, how connected would it be for this to occur? And I'll give you a perfect example, Bill, and maybe you can react to this. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's within your bailiwick, but there are cases that arise all the time. We just had another one come to us today. Ben doesn't know it yet. <clears throat> but, oh, uh, great. <laughs> but we, th there are very often context contextual interpretations of paranormal events that we, we pay attention to and that I don't think a lot of people do. In other words, uh, if you have an experience of a, of a gray being in your room standing at the bottom of your bed and, you know, you have an abduction experience. Aha, it's an alien abduction, or at least an alien, you know. On the other hand, if this is a, a less nebulous figure, looks more human, standing at the, aha, maybe it's a ghost, or maybe it looks like somebody you knew or know or will know, and, and this is the thing. So one wonders, you know, what is an alien in, in this term? You know, in this, I should say, in this context, what does it mean? Is it necessarily someone from another planet, or is it your own brother who was never born in this world who you somehow encounter, much to the surprise of each of you, in in a in a world um, junction, some so to speak, or an overlap? I mean, so so it's the terms that can create mm -hmm. problems too. So, what say you yeah. on all that? Well, first of all, to some extent, whether we're talking about aliens that take form or just ideas that are somehow interpreted to mean extraterrestrial intelligence does not really matter. Each one of us is different. Each one of us has a different experience of reality. We pretend, and it's the only way we can function, that we all live in the exact same reality. But mm. that is actually a fiction. Each one of us is constantly co-creating our reality every minute. We often meet others with whom we share 99.999% of the same beliefs, and so everything that they see, we see. But I think it is one of the reasons why some people see extraterrestrials and others don't. It's almost like what Yogi Berra said, I wouldn't have seen it if I hadn't believed it. <laughs> you, to some extent, you got to believe in order to see. I personally have never had an encounter with an alien being, and yet... I'm open to the idea that alien beings may be communicating with me quite on a regular basis. Certainly the information that is in my novel, The Power of Twelve, is likely to have come to me from another source without me even being aware, because there's certain ideas in my novel that I didn't have at the time I wrote it. Mm -hmm. so, well, they're, they're, we're constantly being fed information <laughs> from all sorts of different yeah. sources, but I, I, I like that. Well, I don't like it, but I, I mean, I, I agree with it. <laughs> that, that scenario you just said. Funny, Ben, you just said something like that um, on the air a few shows ago in reference to, um, you know, if you, oh, no, it wasn't in the, it was in the, the featurette that went with that Conjuring movie. Right. Did, and and you, you said that uh, if you believe it, you're more likely to experience it. Right. In so many words. That's, that's that essentially. That's the most intelligent thing. Well, well and, and it's becoming actually mainstream science because. We are increasingly, as we get into quantum physics and string theory, having to accept non-locality as a reality, which mm. means subjectivity cannot be dismissed and, and say that has no place to bear in scientific measurement or scientific experimentation. So it's getting very confusing, even for mainstream scientists, 
to just completely out of hand dismiss, oh, that's a subjective experience. And the belief systems of scientists now are, in fact, part of the evidence, if you will, that must be calculated to determine whether a scientific finding is, quote, science or fantasy. Absolutely. And there still is a difference between science and fantasy. So, you know, let's not jump, you know, sure, too far. Sure. Well, that's it. Just for those who don't know, non-locality is the is the idea that is, say your your memory or your imagination or, or your consciousness itself is not in you exclusively. It's shared. You know, and that, that's a really important distinction. That's, and that's, and that's one of the things that's very important that most people don't realize is the concept of the collective unconscious, which Alfred Kroeber, the, really the creator of American anthropology, came up with more than 75 years ago, has been around for generations. So this is not just some fringe new idea. People have been aware for centuries that somehow information exists. We now call it the cloud, and we think it's all information that we've put up you know, via sure. the Internet. But well, even before we had the Internet and the cloud, there was information floating, if you will, that certain individuals unexplainably would have access to. And very I think true. Also well, we're going to have to take a break now. I'm sorry okay. to interrupt you, but we'll get right back with that. It leads right into my next question. But you're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on CBS News Sky Radio. We'll be right back with Bill Gladstone. So stick with us. Enlighten. Empower. Enrich. This is CBS Radio's The New Sky. New horizons, no boundaries.
is now CBS Radio's The Sky. Back to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Call now. 248-545-SOUL. New SkyRadio.com. Believe. Welcome back to Behind the Paranormal uh, with Paul and Ben Eno with our fabulous guest this evening, William Gladstone. And we are talking of the multiverse and what that may mean for you. Okay, well, uh, Bill, in my research over the years, I, I want to give you a chance at the bottom of the hour to talk about your novel because I want to lead into it. Uh, in my research over the years, as Ben suggested, uh, it seems to me that our remote ancestors, as you said, knew all about, uh, particularly the multiversal ideas. Carl Jung is usually attributed with the collective unconscious idea, but he got that from his anthropological research and, and working with patients in which he felt that that was, uh, I suppose, in action with them. And he was interested in the paranormal, too. Uh, shamans have told me that they have always known about it and how to use it. So as a cultural anthropologist, uh, how have, have you had the same impressions from people? How Absolutely. I, I've also met with many shamans, and not just in South America, but in Asia and Hawaii and even Japan and India. And there's no question that there are individuals on our planet who have access to information that most people would say is coming from extraterrestrials. Um, and there's also techniques that have been used for, for hundreds of years on our planet that we've discovered from ancient peoples that we no longer know anything about. When I was very young, I worked for Rod Serling on In Search of Ancient Mysteries. And I was actually hired to search for ancient mysteries anywhere in the world that might take me. And I went down to, and saw the Nazca Lines, and I saw the rocks of... Saiwidi and Machu Picchu, and we don't have the technology today to recreate some of these ancient structures. You can't even get a razor blade between some of these rocks. How was it done? We don't know. Also, there's evidence of Amazonian Indians who use telepathy as a normal part of their communication system. So there's a lot of interesting lost technology that we're still searching to rediscover in our, in our modern world. But is it about the technology? Well, I, to some extent, I think it's about the technology insofar as everything that we do is based on ultimately a physical uh, download. Now, whether that download is through telepathy, you're still using your, you know, part of your, your brain. So to me, yes, it, uh, you know, I might be using the word technology in a different way. But for me, the paranormal does involve the use of technology, if you will. I've had near-death exp- uh, near experience, and certainly that experience was technology-free, if you will. But I still believe that for the average human being on this planet, there has to be a physical way to communicate what you learn and how you arrive at information. There's an interesting question that we always, not always, but often bring up with folks who talk about advanced civilizations or simply advancement. And that is, um, we often question the definition 
that we have of that in the West. In other words, advancement is usually described in, in uh, well, I suppose, as technological advancement. All right, and I would frankly rather be in contact, and I suppose you could say have been in our paranormal work, with people and sometimes other species who are spiritually advanced as opposed to technologically advanced. In other I, words, I agree you know what I'm with saying? you. Yeah, absolutely. That is, in fact, what my novel, The Power of Twelve, is all about. When I, I haven't had the pleasure of reading it with, yet. That's the problem. With the Mayan, um, what they described as the reason that the 26,000-year cycle was ending on December 21st, 2012, was that it represented the end of a masculine spiritual cycle and the beginning of a feminine spiritual cycle. Really? And the masculine spiritual cycle was more concerned with technology, with the physical, with material possessions, and that that era has come to an end. And it had to come to an end because if we continue with looking only at the material and the technology, we are going to destroy this planet. So we need to be in balance. So what they're calling feminine energy is what we consider nurturance, forgiveness, aesthetics, and less dependence upon material alone, more what we also consider the spiritual values. My own personal view is that we need to have balance, because if we got rid of all our technology, particularly with 7 billion people yeah. on the planet right now, we'd have utter chaos. Just gonna bring so that up. we need to manage it. All right. No, but I mean, that, that makes sense to me. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, how are you going to sustain, sustain yourselves without technology? That's the one big gripe I have with certain people. Like, we need to just get rid of it all. Well, that, that's... Well, the, no, and, and I mean, I, I'm, I'm more on your guys' view of this. I mean, I just read a, a letter to the San Diego Tribune where some guy says, fracking, we can all become multimillionaires in California again. Let's just go into fracking. I mean, if all you're cared about is short-term paycheck and, you know, being able to spend your money on what in 90% of the cases are useless objects, yeah, go ahead and destroy the earth. But that's not, you know, really prudent thinking, and it's certainly very short-term thinking. Well, this course. planet yeah. is delicate, and this planet is alive. When you do enter an altered state, and I'm not saying LSD altered, I'm talking about, a, and it could be LSD, I'm not against LSD for those who, you know, have had positive experiences with it. But I personally have had many altered experiences, some of which have been in connection with spiritual teachers. And when you are aware of the true nature of reality, you actually realize that 99% of everything going on on this planet is a fantasy. It's not really real at all. And that what is really real is absolutely fantastic, and we're all equally part of that. There's no separation at all. And I'm not just talking about us as human beings, but there's no separation between all living things, and even in some states that I've experienced, there's no difference between animate and inanimate objects. We are just proud of our particular abilities, and so we say that we're alive, we're intelligent, and we're superior. From the point of view of ultimate reality, that is not actually true. There is no actual difference between the consciousness that we may have as individuals and the consciousness of all matter. I have to agree with that. Yeah, I agree with that. Plus, it doesn't help that our culture reinforces it. I, I've taken a few courses in media studies, mm -hmm. and it's essentially 
the, the overall message is that everything is an image of an image of an image of an image. Like you could see the Mo- Mona Lisa, but never actually see the Mona Lisa. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm? Because you just look it up on like Google or something, and bam, you don't even need to go to France to the Louvre to see a wonderful piece of art. You can just go on the internet and look up a picture of it. It's but really kind energy, of energy, but there is energy in objects. This is one of the things. I mean, everything is and isn't. I mean, in my first novel, The Twelve, I I really alluded to this. I had an incredible experience actually when I was at Yale College and recreated Whitehead's modes of thought and came up with the equation A is Whitehead's, and is not Whitehead's A. Sociologist. That Alfred Norris Whitehead was a great oh, mathematician and philosopher. But in any event, the the reality is. Things are and aren't simultaneously. A lot of what we take for granted is not true at all. And you can think of it as we physicists know that everything comes as both a wave and a point. I think of the wave as being part of all that is and the superconsciousness, if you will, and then the point is our individual personality. And both exist simultaneously. Both are real. You have, and every listener out there has a unique personality, and that is real. At the same time, it is also real that you don't exist at all. You're part of the wave of consciousness which unites all matter, and they're yeah. both simultaneously true. That's just what I said in my last book. Each of us is a unique expression of all of us. But then we have the problem of 99% of the time, 99% of us are are, are concerned about things that don't really matter, but that do matter because our collective ignorance is destroying this planet. And that is a real problem. And that's mm-hmm. why I write my novels. When you get a chance to read The Power of Twelve, you'll enjoy it because it doesn't it hit you over the head with these things. It's just a nice story, but I have Arnold Wheeler Dealer, who's the head of the, the Grand Light and the keeper of the Code of the Illuminati, and, you know, with his experiences with Skull and Bones and George Bush, he and 319 families are basically manipulating all 7 billion people to satisfy what they think are their needs and what they think is the highest and best for the planet. Well, this is fantasy, but it's not far from reality. There's probably fewer than 10,000 families controlling 90% of the wealth on this planet. And they're not doing and a for, good job. And what? They're not doing a very good job. Well, they, they are doing a good job for their short-term interests, but you're absolutely right. One of the things I hope to waken people up to, and, you know, even, you know, I've got George Bush as a character in my novel, and I hope he reads it and laughs a little bit at himself, but also for the people that are actually in control, not to take themselves so seriously, and to wake up to the reality that you may, you know, have every material possession in the world and, you know, political power, but if you actually think about the planet as a whole, how can you be happy when there's still two billion people a day going to bed hungry? I mean, you're part of this world, and how do you separate your own individual comfort and your own short-term needs from the needs of the planet as a whole? And I think that this is the change in consciousness which is happening. I think I could not have had this kind of conversation 40 years ago. So when we talk about was there a change with the end of the Mayan calendar, this is the change I'm talking about. All right. There is a dark, or I should say, a, a very dark side to this as we as we see it, as we experience it, mm-hmm. and that is, uh, well, to put it uh, in its, I suppose, almost a euphemistically, uh, negative energy. There are, it seems to us that there's uh, everything out there in the multiverse. Now we're coming up on another break. There's a lot of negative energy, and there is pure evil in the universe. 
Yeah, and, and we've run into the, into it and them. I mean, uh, now, naturally, there there are... If you look at folklore, that, as you know, that there, there's uh, mm-hmm. a grain of truth in every story that mm-hmm. baggage has picked, picked up over the years. And having been in the seminary for many years, people, people often blame me for not espousing their religious beliefs. But the idea of demons comes out. And uh, I say, yeah, I've counted them all the time, half for the past mm-hmm. 43 years. And it's not that they're servants of Satan. That that's just how we think of it, because mm-hmm. that, that's our culture. Uh, but they, they do seem to be almost cosmic mosquitoes feeding on negative energy, learning very quickly, highly intelligent. Um, they seem to have a physical structure, because I've had physical confrontations with them in poltergeist cases. And it, get, it, get, it gets really, really wild. But the idea is that one, one, if they can push buttons in individuals' lives and in the lives of families, what can they do in communities? I've actually seen that start to happen, too. What, what can they do in nations? And so the whole idea, I mean, whether or not there's any of this conspiracy, I don't know. I mean, I was, uh, mm-hmm. my military involvement, I was, you know, I, I had uh, one or two encounters with something like that, but I, I really couldn't, I don't know, but maybe you know more about it than I do. But in any case, whether there is or not, I'm concerned about the multiversal effects of the, the access by these, what we refer to as parasites that seem to be actual life forms, call them alien if you wish, feeding information, false information, doing everything you've described, only, you know, in a way that's a lie, you know, and... Uh, well, well, I mean, it's really amazing. I, I can't believe you haven't read The Power of Pope, because this is exactly what I'm well, I what we're dealing chance. with. But because, I won't believe well, it. Well, the book just came out on Tuesday. I'm not, I'm not you know, okay. blaming well, you. It's no. not that. But yeah. it's that your interests are so aligned, because what we have is the Illuminati. I, and I create a fictional Earth, so I and don't I do, want to... I do have me. to interrupt you. I'm sorry. We'll, we, yeah. we'll come back to that question, Bill. <laughs> Got to take another break. Okay. You're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Vanino on CBS News Sky Radio with our wonderful guest, Bill Gladstone. We'll be right back. Enlighten. Empower. Enrich. This is CBS Radio's The New Sky. New horizons. No boundaries. I seem to recognize your face. Haunting, familiar, yeah. I can't seem to place it Cannot find a candle of thought To light your name Lifetimes are catching up with me All these changes take place I wish I'd seen the place but no one's ever taken me. Hearts and thoughts, they fade, fade away. Hearts and thoughts, they fade, fade away. I swear I recognize your breath. Friends are slowly raising me. You wouldn't recall, or I'm not my father. It's hard when you're stuck upon the shelf. I changed by not changing at all. Small town predicts my fate. Perhaps that's what no one wants to see I just want to 
Radio is now CBS Radio's The Sky. Back to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Call now. 248-545-SOUL. New SkyRadio.com. And welcome back as we continue our conversation with author, cultural anthropologist, uh, Bill Gladstone. I'm, I'm just looking at some all these questions I had here for you, Bill, and we're never going to get to them all. <laughs> but, Bill, uh, during the break especially, we were getting into, and before the break, we were getting into the idea of, of information that's negative, you know, that, that comes in from sources that are not honest, that may have agendas, uh, whether they be in this world or parallel ones, or because the whole thing's kind of an open system. So uh, why don't you talk a little bit about that? Uh, we got into it during the break. and, and Sure. I, I mean, I, I'm very, very happy to, particularly since my new novel, The Power of Twelve, deals with walk-ins. Now, in the case of the Power of Twelve, the walk-ins are representing the Council of Twelve and positive energy. However, before they come on the scene, the Illuminati on the planet, and I create a fictional planet, Earth 769, mainly because I don't want to get sued by anybody because I talk about George W. Bush and I talk about the Skull and Bones at Yale and you know, a lot of real things. But in any event, the White Brotherhood has convinced the Illuminati and the White Brotherhood traditionally are, you know, people like Jesus and, you know, really high-level beings that come and communicate for the purpose of good. However, in this case, they're not the good people, and they have infiltrated those who control the power on Earth-769 and are telling them to do things such as develop GMO and, you know, basically turn everybody into just consumer parasites, a lot of things that are too close to reality, actually, in what we're, we're observing. But in terms of the conspiracy theory that we were talking about during the break, I'm not one to necessarily believe that there are conspiracies in the traditional sense. I do think that there's many people with vested interests who are automatically acting in unison, even without any direct communication. That doesn't mean that there aren't times when there is direct communication and there could be conspiracies, but I don't even think that the conspiracy theory is the big fear. The big fear is that there is evil in the universe and that evil seeks out evil. Negative energy seeks out negative energy. And so we must always be on our guard and Ultimately, the only organ we have that can really determine what is good and what is evil is the heart and not the head. Obviously, you need to use both your head and your heart together. But you can feel, if you develop your awareness, you can feel when people are coming without integrity and without your best and highest 
Boy, that, that's so true. When I look at, now I don't want to get into politics, but in Rhode Island, politics is is, is like a, a, a three ring circus, the, mm-hmm. the biggest spectator sport there is. And my, all my Canadian relatives say, "Oh, we, we watch your news because it's like the most boring." It's entertaining. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but uh, on the other hand, you know, and you have people who are supposed to be so liberal. When you look at them, they're actually like ultra conservative in the worst sense. It's bizarre. Well, they can be. I mean, you know, you know, self-righteous people are self-righteous, and fundamentalists are fundamentalists. And, you know, you can be a left-wing fundamentalist, a right-wing fundamentalist. Of course, you can be a religious fundamentalist. And that doesn't mean that you don't have, you know, some good principles, ultimately, from which your fundamentalism or your fanaticism sprung. But fundamentalism and fanaticism is counter-evolutionary. Scientists have, have made studies of the patterns throughout the universe, and there are universal patterns which encourage complexity and what I would call aesthetics. Mm. And then there are principles which create chaos and entropy. And evolution is meant to align with the creation of beauty and complexity, not with going backwards and creating chaos. And too often, this desire of unidimensionality, whether it's from a fanatic from a religious perspective or political perspective, is not, in reality, enhancing even that person's own belief system. Mm. Well, but I'm going to stop here because I want to give you a chance to talk about your book because we're burning up this hour and it's going to be gone. So talk about the two books. Okay. Well, get the first it? novel I wrote is The Twelve, and the, and the best website to go to now is williamgladstone.org. Too many people were confused whether they should type in 12 or 1 to the book. And you still can go to one to the book, but to make it simpler for people, just my name as author, williamgladstone.org, and you'll also have access to all my blogs, and I've been blogging for about a year and getting into more and more of these kinds of questions because they're very deep. But as a novelist, I was inspired by a real event that happened about 30 years ago where a woman had had a near-death experience, survived the near-death experience, and been given 12 names. This was a real, real person, and I was going to create a movie and a book about her. Time went on. I got busy with other things. I lost track, and I decided, well, the story was very good. We'll call it The Twelve, and I wrote that novel, and I inserted an earlier version of myself as the main character, and it was only after I wrote the first draft and gave a copy to Jose Arguelles, who had been the pioneer behind the harmonic convergence, which was the 25-year sort of bell before the Mayan calendar ended, and drew attention to the importance of that calendar, read my novel, and told me that in a parallel universe, he felt he and I were the same person on the same mission, Mm -hmm. that I started to understand that I had not channeled my novel, but I had been channeled to live a certain life so that I would have experiences that I would write about that were very integral to expressing the true meaning of the Mayan calendar. And when other Mayan shaman read my novel, they told me the same thing. They said, you know, what you've done is really preordained by us, the, the keepers of the calendar, because this information needs to get out to the public. So and that novel was very successful. It's available on Kindle and, and you know, probably not in bookstores because it's four years old. And then I decided to write, okay, so... The Mayan knew that the world was not going to end, but what do they think the Mayan calendar really was about? So I wrote my next novel, The Power of Twelve, which deals with that theme. And it takes, it starts December 22nd, 2012, the day after the Mayan calendar ends, and explores a year 
this current year, actually, in the life of the planet with some of the major issues that we're facing in reality. But I do it with, with you know, fictional characters for the most part. Uh, Arnold Wheeler Dealer, the Grand Light and Keeper of the Code of the Illuminati, is the main evil character, if you will. And he's being confronted by a movement that is called Full Feminine Power Now, which is about this awakening of feminine energy. And the novel unfolds with, you know, a group of people who want to do good, something called Project Wake Up, and they have to confront Arnold Wheeler Dealer and the Illuminati, and they're not doing a very good job at it. So the Council of Twelve on Planet Naranjada sends down four walk-ins to assist with Project Wake Up. And then I'll let you know, the readers discover the novel. But the point is, even though it's fiction, it's really talking about real issues. It's done in a very light-hearted way, and it's done in a way where you don't even know who's good or bad until you get sort of to the middle of the novel. You know, life is like that sometimes. Exactly. And, um, you know, I'm not trying to convert anyone to seeing the world the way I see it, but I do want people to think about these concepts and also to think about what is the nature of reality and what is really going on on this planet, and do you as an individual have a role to play? My answer to each and every person is that everyone matters because you have no idea. One of the final chapters in the novel is called uh, A Pebble because there's a little incident where a ball hits a pebble and this little pebble diverts the direction of this ball and that changes the entire outcome of the novel and the destiny of the planet. And it's a metaphor for the reality of how we exist. You may be, you know, just a mom or you may be retired, you may have only 20 or 30 people in your social circle, but you have no idea how you may be impacting one of those few people in ways that they then are going to impact people that will then impact other people. And it's what some scientists have called the butterfly effect. Just the flapping of wings of a butterfly can change and create storm systems. And that's the nature of reality, and that's one of the things I try to capture in The Power of 12, that everything matters and that every person on this planet right now needs to take responsibility because we're at a critical moment. This is a once in 26,000 year time frame. And the future of this planet is really in our hands right now, collectively. Well, that's fascinating. And often I, I, I agree that the, uh, the fictional medium can be very effective in communicating information that wouldn't get to people if it were written in a nonfiction form, you know. So, uh, you know, congratulations on that. Um, you, you mentioned something that I have thought about over the last few years a lot, because I'm trying to get two more books of my own done, and that is what you refer to as the zero point, okay, a place or state in which all the information converges. Can you talk more about your ideas on that? Well, most of my ideas on it really come from Dr. Irvin Laszlo, who's a good friend of mine and happens to also be a client in, in my normal everyday life. I'm a literary agent. I represent people like Eckhart Tolle, Neil Donald Walsh, several climate scientists, and Dr. Irvin Laszlo. And Dr. Laszlo has written extensively on this called Science and the Akashic Field, and he's got several new books, the, the, the Akashic Paradigm, coming out next year. So I've been privy to a lot of his thinking even before it's published. And Deepak Chopra has called Irvin you know, one of the great minds of the 20th and 21st centuries. And what he writes about is scientific evidence that the ancient concept of the Akashic Records is real and can be measured, and that there is a way of accessing the zero point, which in popular uh, culture could be considered the Akashic Records. 
How this could be is mind-boggling, because basically what the Akashic Records represent is everything that ever was or could be simultaneously coexisting in a non-space space and accessible. And I actually use this concept in The Power of 12. I even create the holographic Akashic Records reader for the use of the people on planet Naranjada, because higher beings definitely have access to this zero point. I think it's what explains a Beethoven or a Mozart or, you know, how do we explain people who just suddenly are born with very high-level intelligence that has not been taught, or skills, as in the case of musicians. So I think that there's definitely a reality to it, and I think that scientists are starting to consider this fair game for, you know, traditional science until sure. 20 or 30 uh, years ago. Say, we have another break. I'm sorry I'll yeah. interrupt you again, but we'll come right back into that because I have a question about it. You're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on CBS New Sky Radio. Stick with us. We'll be right back. Enlighten. Empower. Enrich. This is CBS Radio's The New Sky. New horizons. No boundaries. And maybe 
Sidekick Radio is now CBS Radio's The Sky. Back to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Call now. 248-545-SOL. New SkyRadio.com. Believe. Thank you. Very pleasant intro. You're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. I am Ben, and this is Paul. And with us this evening is uh, Bill Gladstone, our guest. And we are going to let you get right back to where you started from. Well, not started, or where you left off, I should say, because we don't have much time, and we really want to hear you continue. Well, I was just commenting on the information that I've learned from Dr. Irvin Laszlo about the nature of the zero point really being similar to what the ancient Hindus called the Akashic Records. And actually, the, the South American uh, short story writer, Jorge Luis Borges, referred to it as, as the Aleph. And in his fiction, the Aleph was located in a closet in a small home in Buenos Aires. But all these concepts are very interesting because they, they're emerging as an accurate portrayal of the true nature of reality. And this accurate portrayal is that there really does exist sort of a cosmic record of everything that ever has been, ever will be, and ever could be, and that somehow it is accessible. How this can be is beyond human comprehension. I mean, how can something that hasn't occurred yet already, at least hasn't occurred yet from our human perspective, already exist as a record? And then to complicate things more, add in the notion of infinity. Because it might not be that there are just multiverses, but there may be an infinite number of multiverses. That's right. And if that's correct, then all bets are off, because then we have almost nothing concrete we can hold on to. So as human beings, we need to freeze even our awareness at times so that we can deal as practical humans with the true nature of reality. Some string theorists have, and quantum physicists have talked about our reality is nothing more than the surface of a pond, with the deep reality actually being the water beneath. And it's that deep reality and the currents in that reality which create the surface disturbances which we think of as reality. <laughs> so, like you know, it, we're getting very much... I, I'm very happy that, you know, I, I got to know Rod Serling and I worked for him when I was a young man. And, you know, whenever I, I start thinking about this, I start thinking about the Twilight Zone music... <laughs> Because yeah. we're, 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 out, we're out of our, our known world when we start, you know, contemplating the nature of real reality. And having had a near-death experience, for me, these aren't just ideas. I have experienced what it's like when you don't have a body, but you just have pure consciousness. And at least in my instance, it was pure bliss and pure joy. And from what I've studied of now millions of people who have reported out-of-body experiences, near-death experience, over 90% of them have had positive experiences because my belief is that fundamentally existence is about joy and it is not about suffering. There is, from the point of view of non-human perception, infinite abundance in everything and infinite variety and joy, which I think is the fundamental state of all matter. I have to send you my last book because we, uh, <laughs> I, I get into that as well. The, the, the notion of uh, the, the standard garden variety theological notion of heaven would be death because it would be. Yeah, you, you have to be boring. dynamic. Yeah, exactly. If, if you had the same wonderful lobster every night by 
six months, you'd never want to have lobster again. In fact, there's evidence that lobsters, which, and I'm talking about this because I happen to love lobsters, and you, know, you guys are in New England, yeah. and, and it's part of the economy there. But there's actual reports of riots in prisons about 100 years ago because lobsters were so plentiful, they gave the prisoners lobsters every day. That's right. And eventually, that's true. the prisoners revolted because they, they got so sick of eating lobster. It was considered junk food at the time. I'm a historian yeah. under another hat, and I've written about that, too. So the lobsters mm -hmm. were the culprits in that situation. Well, uh, let me... I, we're almost out of time here, but I, Ben, did you want to... Uh, did you have another question before I introduce another? Uh, no. Okay. My greatest teacher, Bill, was a young boy at the age of five who was dying of leukemia. This is back in 1991. And uh, he lived in the vicinity of New London, Connecticut. <clears throat> and he said a lot of things that I learned from. One of them was there are two kinds of people who will be of great significance in what then was the future. He called them the high men and the low men, mm -hmm. or high people and low people. In other words, people who have consciousness, as we have discussed, mm -hmm. and um, those who do not. And I, I just, um, th that has affected me all along as, you know, and, and not to judge human beings, but you have to, if you're a parent. You have, you to, have judge. to judge. And, uh, and there are higher and there are lower, and that's just the way it is. fortunate thing is the higher and lower has nothing to do with the trappings of wealth and success. You can have very highly evolved people who have not chosen to be visible, and you can have people who are not actually that highly evolved, but have learned how to play the system, if you will, so that they end up seeming to be successful. Very but true. those are superficial, you know, costumes, if you will. And what you really need to look at when you're deciding who to be with is the energy that that human being emits beneath the exterior of the role that they're playing. Mm-hmm. Well, Bill, excellent. I'm afraid we're just about out of time, and we're definitely going to do this again. And once again, your website? WilliamGladstone.org, and there's some great blogs there. You can also go to TappingTheSourceMovie.com. We didn't get into uh, – we also made a movie called Tapping the Source where people tell us – there's over 122 mostly famous people who tell us how they access the source or the zero point. Excellent. That's a fun movie, and so I encourage your viewers to see that as well. But it's been a, a real joy to be on the show with you, and I do look forward to another time we can get into you know even more depth on some of these. Do it real soon. That's excellent. Well, Bill, thank you so much. Okay. okay. You're welcome. All right, folks, just a few announcements. Uh, just a reminder that we'll have the drawing tomorrow on our Monday, October 7th show for two free family packs of four tickets each to the first New England UFO conference in Lemonster, Massachusetts on Saturday, October 26th. Entries are now closed, but you can still buy tickets. Among the speakers will be some of the UFO experts who are regulars on our show, Stan Friedman, Kathleen Martin, Peter Robbins, among others, Bob Schroeder, who will be on the show tomorrow night. We'll do the drawing, actually. Uh, ben and I will host the UFO movie venue at that event. We'll interview speakers before a live audience, and we'll present a program of our own on UFOs and the paranormal after dinner. For tickets, visit neufoconference.com. Dot vpweb.com. There's a link on our show homepage behind the paranormal.com. On Sunday, November 10th, uh, we are rescheduled. Uh, or we are rescheduled to do our uh, rescheduled. We are scheduled to do our 500th show, and that will be uh, right here on CBS New Sky. And we'd like to hear your suggestions for what you'd like us to do for that show. The prevailing opinion is that we do a wrap up of our best shows since uh, our debut in 2008. So let us know on behind the paranormal show page on. Uh, 
Facebook, and you can drop us an email at paul at behindtheparanormal.com or ben at behindtheparanormal.com or visit us at uh, behindtheparanormal.com or visit us or write to us at uh, behindtheparanormal.com radio and TV, whatever. Just continue. (laughs) Whatever. I can't talk right now. (laughs) Uh, Okay. Uh, So many thanks to our producer, Brandon Jackson. Next week, October 6th, we will bring you an open line show on any and all paranormal subjects. Get your questions to us at all those email addresses Ben just gave. In the meantime, tune into our Boston Providence Drive Time show on WOON 1240 AM and ONworldwide.com, 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 Pacific, every Monday. We leave you this evening with a thought from American author and philosopher William James. Believe that life is worth living, and your belief will help the fact. Help create the fact. Sorry. I'm Paul Eno. I'm Ben Eno, and we can't talk this evening. Thanks for joining us on our great (laughs) cosmic journey. We will see you next time.